Welcome to Cinema Talk at the Wisconsin Film Festival. I'm Mike King, senior programmer for the festival, and our guest on this episode is the filmmaker James Vaughn, whose new film, Friends and Strangers, is one of the discoveries screening in our 2021 festival. A fresh and entrancing take on the timeless subject of young adulthood, Friends and Strangers introduces a clique of Australian 20-somethings who are looking for their direction but keep getting distracted along the way. Writer-director James Vaughn's debut feature is brilliantly composed all around, from its crisp, lovely cinematography and precisely calibrated atmosphere, to the striking paintings and music that serve as counterpoint to its character's careful hesitancy. Here's my conversation with the writer, director, and editor of Friends and Strangers, James Vaughn. James Vaughn, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So this is a beautifully crafted and very funny film, and it's also rather original. And in addition to your directing it, you also wrote and edited it. So I thought we might start by talking about your overall approach to narrative, where there's a wonderful sense of freedom about it. You know, rather than rigidly progress from A to B, you seem to rely more on chance encounters and happenstance, and you allow the story to drift into interesting new directions. Um, rather than like clean resolutions. So can you talk about how you envision this kind of looser framework for your movie? Yeah. Um, it's, I guess it's definitely something that happens in the writing process and happens very, for me, very slowly. Um, it probably starts with a feeling of a structural, a, a vague structural shape that I know is going to appeal somehow um, without knowing what form that will be. But exactly as you said, uh, something that, that drifts and in, in a way where there's a kind of to and a fro between um, the random structural elements that guide the story and then the story guiding the, the structural elements. And I suppose with a lot of films, it's the story that, that guides the structure and, um, and that presupposes from, you know, before that, that the structure should take a certain form. But I, yeah, I guess with writing this, it was uh, knowing that it, yeah, I wanted it to be a two way street where some things, that seemed random then end up influencing the story and other things that seem really deliberate, um, but, but kind of meaningless, you know, and, and how those things fit in, um, creating a kind of mystery around what's actually pushing the, the story forward. So, um, for me, that was, yeah, that was important because I feel like that's how life happens. I guess that was the, um, that was the, the reason in a way that made it feel like, justified or something to, to do it like this right like why why not do it the way you, you're normally meant to do it aside from just liking films that that have uh, operate along, along those different sort of structural logics but um yeah it just seems closer to closer to real life i guess so the period of writing was a period of um trying to absorb situations and uh experiences and sort of encounters um and then slowly start to checkerboard them into a yeah i guess into a into a sort of shape and it's just it's trial and trial and error really like looking for shapes that are interesting and um shapes that feel yeah that, that feel like they're that they're full of potential in a way for for a dramatic experience um and that probably took two years i think like wow. the, the writing process um because i was working at the same time full-time trying to i knew i was going to be funding the film myself as well so it wasn't like, I think if I had just writing time, it, it could have been much shorter. But I think there's something good that comes out of having that time as well. might have even been more than two years, I think. It could have been two and a half. 
Um, because you, yeah, some ideas you just sort of lose interest in over that time and others you, you, you know are still, still good. And looking back at some of those early drafts, it's like so much of it was, was junk. And I guess if you are writing, you know, intensely in a, in a short period to try and, try and get it out done and get it quick, get it done quickly, um, to make the film quickly, there's probably, for me at least, a chance that some of that junk would stay in there. So it wasn't all bad. (laughs) Well, I mean, I like how you say it's more lifelike, but also it's mysterious at times. Um, and I think the way that you pull this off creates a sense that there's like more around the corner in this uh, film. You know, there's a world beyond the frame. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose that's, in a way, how we live is is a choice about how much to to live, you know, with that in mind, because in a way life is extremely mysterious and in every moment we can, we have this sort of infinite, well, depending on how you look at it, some people would say we have no choice at all, but uh, that's, I'd probably say those people are in a minority. Most people, you know, we, we, have, we have choices and there's a kind of incredible mystery to just the fact that we live in a moment where the next moment we can choose what we do. Um, and a lot of the boundaries and things are, boundaries we've set up for ourselves and or other people have set up for us so it's something that just feels it feels true yeah um it, it feels like it feels true to the the kind of inherent mystery and magic of of life but i also think that's yeah mystery and um intrigue <laughs> uh is is something that cinema's always played with too um, and, 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 you know, the forms that cinema came out of, I guess, the novel and theatre and, and things like that. So they are genre elements to a degree, and probably of all the genre elements, um, they're the ones that I, yeah, I really like the most. Um, and I, I, but then comedy too, you know, that there's something kind of funny about a mystery um, mm-hmm. that doesn't go anywhere. It, it sort of, yeah. yeah, it builds a kind of suspense, so it's useful in that way. I guess it serves a few purposes. Well, you talk about the sort of wide open feeling of choices that there are. Um, and I think that's, you know, I guess that sort of leads into a discussion about your characters a little bit, because they sort of uh, come from a position of comfort, and it seems like they have every opportunity, but they also seem to feel the sort of the trepidation of the blank page, I would yeah. say, you know, um, of their futures. Um, you know, Ray says, like, I wish I could work with my hands. Um, you know, these are people who aren't really beholden to schedules. They don't really face consequences for what happens to them. Their mom will mm. bail them out if they mm-hmm. get into a jam. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you elaborate on the perspective that you're bringing to these characters? Definitely. Um, it's probably, first first of all, like, the biggest influence on that would be my experience, um, you know, in Sydney, uh, going to a Growing up in a very comfortable white um, middle upper middle class part of part of Sydney, going to private school um, surrounded by people that were pretty similar, then um, going to uni, you know, in, in a kind of humanities area and meeting lots of people like that too, and just seeing, I guess, that that the path that a lot of the people who followed that path seems to it seems to go a certain way a lot of the time, um, which which yeah, is, is moving from having a very privileged, comfortable and structured experience that 
becomes less and less structured um, the closer you get to kind of 30. And for some people, it's like they haven't really thought at that, you know, that place, just assume that the job would materialize and, mm-hmm. uh, or the, whether it's a university, you know, teaching position or, uh, you know, career as, a, as, a, as an artist in, in some way, it would all just kind of work. Um, but for, yeah, a lot of people it doesn't. And um, that's a pretty, tra- trauma is a, a word that's too strong, but it's confronting for people mm-hmm. who've just assumed that, you know, that everything they've, they've, they've been moving towards, probably in, in a half-asleep kind of way a lot of the time, um, maybe actually is, is the, totally the wrong track, um, but with no idea wh- which way to turn. Um, so, yeah, for, from like 25 to 30, I guess, was around the time I was making the film, um, from when I started to when, it, when I finished. And, um, yeah, it, 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 was, it was reflective of of myself in that position, um, having moved back from Melbourne, having made a documentary, co-directing a documentary that worked for a long time on and just never never felt satisfied with it creatively, having made a short film before that that was successful and, um, you know, thinking, oh, the next thing I do is just going to be just going to be great and going to be even more successful and it doesn't matter what it is, it's just, it's just, that's just the natural order because there's, it's like a private school mentality of, you know, you, you do well here and then you move on to the next thing and so I, I moved cities and I had no house and yeah it, no job and um, sort of sense of failure I, I guess of moving away from your home city and coming coming back again and also yeah with this film that just hadn't worked out and so I was a bit bit flat at that point um, so yeah it just seemed like something that I could speak truthfully about my own experience but also I knew that it was something that was yeah, a lot of people in our kind of generation, um, I don't know about, you know, universally in in the West or whatever, but it definitely in, in Australia, it just felt like something I had had a really palpable experience of, but I hadn't seen it really um, handled in, in film in Australia, for sure. Um, and, and maybe in other, yeah, it just it seems like in Australia too, that there's, there's often a reluctance to look squarely at um, middle middle class upper middle class white white people um the, a lot of you know those are the people who are actually in the positions of power in, in the cultural industries who are making funding choices about what kind of stories um get seen and there's you know like everywhere at the moment a real push for diversity which is excellent um but it's still you know driven by largely white privately educated middle class people at, at the top making these decisions and whether there's, uh, yeah, whether it's a, a, from from psychologizing it a bit, I don't know whether it's like those people in those positions not wanting to be seen, actually not wanting to be noticed as maybe the ones who still haven't, there's still not that diversity at that level, and so therefore like our films or or, or art or, or anything that's that's interrogating those structures and those people and how um, those people got there. You know, we don't want to see that. It's just better to put, um, you know, a really sort of heartwarming story about a migrant family uh, um, and fund that. But yeah, there's a reluctance in Australia, I think, because of our own history as well, to look at our look at you know the, the power structures and the, the core of the, the the white wealthy white decision makers. Um, so all those things, I guess, together, just felt yeah, it felt like something that was worth worth looking at. 
Yeah, I think that your film has a really, you know, sort of fresh uh, way of looking at these issues. And one of the things that I, I mean, the characters are reasonably, you know, they're pretty thoughtful and self-aware about this. But, you know, I, it feels like you don't, you know, dismiss them or demonize them necessarily. It's just sort of this larger sort of societal position. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's probably true to, yeah. Again, I'm probably sounding repetitive here, but it, it was something I had really, yeah, was puzzling over the last five years. Work, I worked at a art gallery um, where everyone who works there is very much aware of a lot of Australia's historical, colonial, political problems and structural inequalities and, I mean, just the genocidal history of the country, basically, and the uh, legacy that that's left. Um, and then the other kind of political, you know, um, political problems that, that, that Western democracies all around the world all, all share, but that, that kind of original sin of, um, colonization in Australia, which is in its form, you know, kind of unique here because of the way we, we, you know, say New Zealand, there were, tr there was a treaty process when, it, when, um, the British arrived and there just wasn't that here. So it was this ongoing kind of um, colonial violence, which the country still doesn't talk about really um, and doesn't acknowledge. You know, we have huge war memorials for the, the our soldiers from World War II and World War I and the big national holidays every year, but we don't talk about the war that actually is the reason why we're all here now. Um, and there's, yeah, anthropologist, there's a famous Australian anthropologist who calls it the Great Australian Silence. Um, and it's true. It's it's something that even being aware of, and even even gesturing towards, um, in whether it's sort of an acknowledgement of the traditional custodians of the land, you know, wherever where we all live and work now. Whether you, you sort of make that acknowledgement at the start of an, an opening of a you know new art exhibition or um, anything like that, those gestures are all better than, than nothing, but the, the, I was still just puzzled by by the situation where, yeah, we're all aware now, um, but everything's still the same. Um, mm. We're still profiting and thriving on the legacy of this grand, grand injustice um, and complicit in it. And so, what, yeah, what, what, do you, what do individuals do? And I just... Um, it wasn't a film that tried to answer any of those things. It was more just looking at the person in the position, being in that position, which I could see a lot of people, you know, trying to, on social media, be, be active and, and go to protests every now and again um, and make sort of small choices about who to support, you know, what albums to buy or, or whatever and uh, or what art galleries to, to turn up and what arts to show solidarity with. Beyond that, the, the real big, foundation bricks aren't, aren't really moving um and what is it <laughs> what do you do when you know something's wrong but you have no idea how to how to change change any of it um i feel like that leads to certainly um a sense of hopelessness and confusion and despair and nihilism almost it, it's a risk for for i think for people um and it's probably comparable to the feeling a lot of everyone you know, around the world feels about climate change as well. It is, in a way, a similar mm -hmm. thing. Um, so, yeah, it's not the film, I guess, wasn't ever going to be answering any of those things. It was just 
an observation of some people um, in that kind of mental space. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's a perceptive movie. Um, to move into sort of uh, a more production uh, aspect of it. Uh, so a long stretch of the movie takes place at this incredible house, which is filled with artworks and is owned by this really funny guy. Um, and it's you really take advantage of this location, you know, all the spatial pop possibilities that are offered characters interact between different floors through windows. They encounter each other around the corner all the time. Um, and you do a bit of this early on also kind of with the tent, but this particular house is like so fully integrated that it's hard to mm. envision the movie without it. So mm. can you tell us, talk to us about this amazing location, how you found it, how you decorated it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the house was, something that I, I landed in um, well before I was writing, you know, writing the, the scene for that house. The ha it was the idea for the scene that came from visiting that house, even though I didn't actually oh. realize that I was writing um, with that house kind of in the back of my head, but thinking if and when I came to shoot the film, we would find something else because um, that was just, you know, it was just like one of those things that you think, oh, that was an experience, it's gone. The closer we got to making it, um, the more I realized, yeah, that that was so important. I'd written scenes for rooms and things that I remembered from the house and views that you had and, yeah, relationships between spaces there. I was like, this is going to be impossible to, it's going to require a rewrite of the script if we find something else. So I um, reached out to the person who owned the house and it was like a friend of a friend of a friend. Um, mm. it, was a, it was like a kind of dinner party sort of thing that I felt very out of place at. You know, it was, it was a bit of an, I was invited, but almost inappropriately, and was really um, nervous when I was when I was there. And so I was nervous when I asked her to, because I knew she wouldn't remember me, um, the, the owner of the house. Um, but but yeah, Kate, the the owner, she was just incredibly. Her her job is she works as an art um, consultant, so uh, all that artwork in the house is hers. We didn't do it. We did, didn't design really? any of it. Yeah, yeah, we didn't. Um, have to do we, we literally didn't move a single painting in there actually no there were, there were one or two that she wanted moved out for sort of private reasons um but the house is just wall to wall always that's incredible like ready-made yeah. like that yeah 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 because she's um she's always buying new things and and selling them on and um doesn't have enough room for you know doesn't have the storage room so the walls just become the storage um, while they're in, while they're between sales or whatever. And yeah, she knew a lot of the artists. They're all kind of pretty established, well-known, um, Australian contemporary artists. And she knew she buys their work. So she knew them all and they were all fine with us having the, the paintings in there. So it was, it was just couldn't have been better the way it worked out. And you're right. The film wouldn't have worked. The, the scripts wouldn't have worked. And, uh, it, it was so, generous of her to open her house up to, you know, 30 people for, for three or four days. Um, because I think once people have had that experience of letting people film in their house, they never do it again. So we were lucky that <laughs> <laughs> there hadn't been someone else who'd done, who'd done that before with her. Uh, and I don't know if she let us back in, but it was, a, you know, she was, she was so great. So yeah, that, that's how that happened. Wow. That's awesome. So, um, another way you play with our perception of this world is through the sound design, which makes a really uh, impressive use of like off-screen space. Picture and sound don't always reinforce each other 
in this movie. Most conspicuously, you have this ominous music that's being blasted by a neighbor and it sort of bleeds into the scenes that are in another location. Can you uh, talk about your approach to sound design? Yeah, uh, that was definitely something there at the script stage. I knew, I think I, I think I pinched the idea from, um, there's a, a film, Vera Baxter by Margaret Durar, um, amazing French, she, she, her most famous film was India Song. Um, and I, I just, there's something really magical about her films, but in um, Vera Baxter, there's in that film, it's kind of a very serious French, um, Brechtian almost kind of drama between these women in a house with these big empty rooms and stuff, but kind of comedically, well, I find it kind of funny. It's beautiful, but funny in the film. There's this uh, flute. It's like South American flute music that they keep referring to as the neighbors having a party, but it's, it must be like a 30 second thing that's just on, on loop the whole, <laughs> the whole, basically the whole film just drifts in and out. And it's, it's never treated like a joke in the film, but I think that it's like wickedly kind of, I don't know, like a, yeah, there's just, it's, it's amazing. And I, I think that just, I love the, I love that. And, um, I think that just wormed its way into, into some of the ideas I, I was having with the script and thought this would work with some of the themes and just some of the things I was interested in, you know, borrowing that idea could work really well. Um, but that, yeah, I guess that's, that's where the, the idea for that came from. Um, but just generally I do, you know, in the film, there's a lot of distractions and diversions. And like you said, the random kind of things that are constantly invading whatever the, the characters are trying to do. There's always four or five things that are interrupting them, um, and stopping them. And it, and it's sort of something that the characters are welcome to because, directionless themselves they're looking for distractions and ways out of situations all the time um so yeah music uh your space is one is one way that that sort of happens um with people invading you know moving between spaces and that kind of thing but sound as well i guess is um yeah people talking over fences or you know out of windows mm -hmm. and music and um it is was it was yeah it was something that uh, I, I thought would be would be would really work with the film, and then in that final sequence in the house, the fact that it's like this terrifying uh, avant-garde music, I guess works thematically too. Without having to, I really didn't want there to be like a a moment where we learn the lessons uh, mm. about you know bad things and bad people, but the music kind of. Um, yeah, it, it it does that. It suggests that, but also in a kind of comedic way. So it was, um, well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I really like about that particular music is that it allows you to have this, like, intrusive score with the additional layer that the characters are also hearing it. So it changes the dynamic, not only like in our perception of it as a score, but it also changes how they're relating to each other because they're hearing this, like, live score sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, that... I was a bit nervous about that because, you know, we obviously didn't have the music playing when we shot it because you just, mm, you know, right. it's just bad sort of practice. Um, and the sound designers would just say, no, no way. Um, and yeah, it, it just wouldn't work as an editor. Like if you, yeah. So we, we had to shoot it in silence and I didn't know if, 
I hadn't actually landed on which piece I would choose when we were shooting it either. There were like a few I was thinking about, but it was all the kind of thing of just hoping this would come together. Uh, in the script, it actually stops. They go outside to bang on the window, and in the script, mm-hmm. they come back in, and actually the music stops then, um, what I had in the script. So I thought the music would stop there, but it was just in the edit that it realized that it, it worked a lot better if it just didn't stop um, and kept going and kind of kept getting louder. And... Um, for a few reasons. Um, the biggest one probably being that when it stopped, there was just this like drop in energy that was hard to recover from. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was, it was luck in a way that it worked. I, I really didn't know if it would because obviously the performers weren't, you, uh, when you're, when you're watching it, you assume that some of the choices, the actors, you know, you just put them, put them together, put the performance and the music together and, and they, mm-hmm. but they, I told them that, oh, there's this, you know, there's some lines that reference reference it, which I, I think are really important. If those few lines weren't there, I think it might be a bit disconnected. But, um, yeah, it's amazing how you, you just, yeah, that they seem to complement each other, even though we, we weren't always totally on top of making sure that was going to happen. It kind of just landed landed like that a little bit. Yeah, I think it works great. And speaking of music, I guess it reminds me of this. The way you use this amazing John Gibson uh, solo flute piece throughout the movie a couple of times, um, it somehow seems to me to you know be of a piece with the other sort of like artifacts that are in this movie, you know. Um, and I just wonder if you could talk a bit about how you know that piece or other things might inspire you as you're creating this. What you take from them? Mm. Yeah, that was um, that was a piece I heard when I was looking for music uh, during the edit. Mm. Um, didn't have that piece in mind earlier on, um, but it as soon as I pulled it into the timeline, it was like, oh, this is... I think it was actually just on YouTube, and I hit play and had it like under some of the stuff I was editing. It. And I, I'd listened to it, but not with the, the images, and it didn't have such a, an impact on me actually it was only when I saw it with the other stuff it's like oh, it just really captures something about yeah. what the film is the, the sort of feeling of the yeah like like you said earlier on the mis- sense of mystery um, it, it, it has that in this beautiful way and just never left the, it actually in a previous edit it was there for like 30 or 40 minutes of the film and everyone was like <laughs> you've got to take out that that flute it's just killing killing me because <laughs> it's a long um, piece it's a long piece yeah and i think it's i'm not sure how many minutes it's in there now it might be like seven or something all up but yeah it was honestly like 30 or 40 in in previous versions of the edit and people were begging me to take it out <laughs> and i was kind of enjoying the pain that people were in um probably again in this sort of yeah zero baxter kind of this, the brutality of the repetition um it has no obvious obvious point um maybe i i liked but yeah no i think it's it's accented now in just a few places and, and works pretty well i feel like yeah it's great um well i want to thank you for taking the time to join us today and for sharing your film with us and Thanks hopefully so sometime for... after all this we can bring you to madison oh, i would love that yeah no it's such a pleasure to be to participate in the festival and um yeah, thanks thanks for 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 watching the film and um, to everyone who watched it. Yeah, I hope you I hope you enjoyed it.